The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 129 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Hey, so as you might have noticed, this episode is longer than most. I try to always keep each and every episode to under an hour or less, but this week's guest author, J.R. Sanders, and I, how gosh, he was just so enjoyable to talk to, I completely lost track of time, So, and I believe you're going to do the same while listening. However, in the interest of time, I will go ahead and make this segment shorter than usual, so let's start off by thanking our wonderful sponsors, like you store all out of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the premier self-storage facility with two locations, climate control and non-climate control. You will find something to suit your storage needs at you store all. And make sure to check them out online at ustoreall.net. That is spelled the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L dot net. And we have renewed sponsorship contracts with Scribner, my favorite writing software. Hey, check out this ad for them, and uh, make sure you listen in particular for that coupon code CHAPTER so you can save 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scribner. Now, I know you've heard about Scribner because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scribner's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scribner every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scribner Writing Software, built by writers for writers. Yes, indeed, Scribner is the way to go. I love them and I think you will too, so check them out. Click the link in the show notes to check out more from Scribner. And like I said, don't forget that coupon code and save yourself some money. I also want to give a huge shout out to our podcast networks that this show is a part of, starting with Pop Goes a Culture Network. They have at least half a dozen other shows on there, uh, everything nerd culture, geek culture, anything in the pop culture realm, you're going to find it there at popgoesaculture.com. Click the link in the show notes to find out more about them and and their flagship show, Pop Goes a Culture Podcast, which is recorded live every Thursday night, and you can interact with them. So click that link in the show notes to find out more. And of course, my most recent network that we joined back in the spring, Project Entertainment Network, with about 35 different shows, you will find something to tickle your fancy, whatever that may be, (laughs) I guarantee. Hey, check out this ad for one of their amazing shows. Podcast, Dead Sexy Podcasts. I'm your host, Armand Rosamilia. Fridays exclusively on Project Entertainment Network, where I interview authors, publishers, editors, artists, filmmakers, narrators, the lady from Walmart, whoever I feel like talking to. That's every Friday 
Armcast, right here on Project Entertainment Network. Hey, while I'm at it, I do want to give a special shout out to a brand new to me podcast, the Six Gun Justice podcast. Uh, they talk all things westerns. So if you have an interest in western books, movies, TV shows, anything at all westerns, you got to check them out. I a friend recommended the show to me about a week ago. I uh, downloaded an episode, liked it, so I downloaded like two more. And I, halfway through the second episode that I'm listening to, I went back and downloaded every episode. They just started this year, so there's only, you know, there's there's less than 30 episodes, I think. And they're all pretty quick. So it was, it, I, I spent like three days listening to the entire run. And now I'm caught up and I'm, I'm miserable because... I don't have anything new to listen to from the uh, Six Gun Justice, but there, it's a great show. I think you're going to like it too. If you have any interest at all in uh, the Western genre, then you'll love it too. And speaking of this week's guest, J.R. Sanders, uh, the Six Gun Justice had an episode recently where they even did a uh, an in-depth review of his book, Stardust Trail, which is the one he's going to read from today. So check that out. I'll put a link in the notes for Six Gun Justice, and uh, you can go in there and find out more. It's it's well worth your time. So as I said, this week's guest, J.R. Sanders, he's a retired police officer from California that now writes both nonfiction and fiction stories with a Western and detective slant, although he and his wife did co-write together a YA novel called Emily's Gift that debuts on July 31st, which is later this week, and uh, at the time we were recording, it even had that little orange tag on there on Amazon as a best-selling new release, so again, congratulations, that's an awesome thing, and uh, it looks like an adorable book. Like I said, I got so wrapped up talking with JR, we had a great time talking about his childhood influences that really romanced his love for the West, how he uses his investigative skills as a writer now, because he does some of that nonfiction, which some really, really cool books. You know, these are not like dry nonfiction books. These are in-depth discoveries of ranging subjects. So really, really cool stuff. And and you're going to just love all of it. It's a great interview and a great time had by myself. And, uh, you know, without further ado, let's jump on over to that interview with J.R. Sanders. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Hey, welcome back to another exciting episode. This week, we are hitting the trail with J.R. Sanders and going to be uh, checking out one of his latest books, Stardust Trail. J.R. Sanders writes on the history and culture of the American West and pens novels of crime in America. He's a native Kansan and longtime denizen of the L.A. suburbs, but I've got him in the saddle with me today. J.R., welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm so excited to have another Western author on here. I, I don't get too many, so this is, is, uh, this is really exciting to me. Well, happy to be here. <laughs> well, so now how are, you, how are you doing? Are you getting along all right with the pandemic and staying healthy? Yeah, we're doing our best, staying healthy and uh, you know, staying home for the most part. 
getting a lot of writing done, I'm sure. <laughs> That's one advantage to this all, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so now what brought you from Kansas to LA? I actually, uh, though I was born in Kansas, I was dragged to California kicking and screaming when I was just a kid. <laughs> my dad uh, worked in aerospace back in the days of the space program. And he, he actually worked on Mercury, Gemini, all the way up through the space shuttles. And so uh, it was kind of like being a military brat, bouncing around the country quite a bit. And uh, just back in the 70s, landed in California, and I've never been able to escape. <laughs> There's there's certain, some kind of a pull to that because uh, I'm a I'm a native Missourian, and my brother he has been in uh, he's been in California uh, actually suburbs of L.A. Uh, gosh, 25 years now. Oh yeah. So now, what was it about uh, the uh, the West that made you want to start writing there? Well, I think because of of being born in Kansas and living there when I was a kid, my dad was. Uh, was a fan of the old West, not just, you know, the Western movies and TV shows that were around when I was a kid, but the, the history of the West, um, he kind of grew up hearing it. And he was a farm kid and had horses as a kid. And so was sort of into that whole lifestyle anyway. And it just rubbed off on me when I was a kid, we used to go to places like, um, Abilene, Kansas or Dodge city or mm. the Dalton gang hideout. And, mm -hmm. uh, so it's just something that's always been with me and, and uh, I think, I guess always will be. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I have to agree with that. Cause that's something that uh, I remember growing up listening or watching the, uh, the old black and white Westerns. And uh, for me, it was the Lone Ranger. I was, yeah. I had, I think I was Lone Ranger for Halloween twice as a kid. <laughs> and, and I just, I just loved that, uh, that, constant uh, search for justice in the old west and and doing what's right yeah exactly and then of course here comes clint eastwood and it was introduced to my life and yeah. then i learned about uh the uh the, i was cutting holes in my blankets and uh <laughs> chewing on a twig for a cigar <laughs> yeah yeah westerns were never the same <laughs> that's right that's right so now were you uh, were you writing at a young age uh I guess you could call it that, you know, I used to, as a kid, I used to drive my family nuts. I would write these little, you know, silly plays and uh, perform them for the family or, mm. and, you know, force them to watch and sometimes even act out parts. And, and I was a strange child. <laughs> Not so strange. That's, that's uh, sounding familiar or perhaps, <laughs> perhaps the same kind of strange, I think. <laughs> so I've, I've always done, you know, a little bit of that, I guess. And just, uh, you know, welcome the chance, uh, midlife to kind of make a career shift and, and, uh, do it full time. Wonderful. All right. Well, what was the, uh, what was the first book? Uh, the very first book I did was actually a history of, uh, kind of a photo history of Southern California apple farms. Oh, okay. Uh, we had some friends who ran a, ran an apple farm in the hills uh, of San Bernardino County. And uh, so it just kind of got me interested in that. And they had come across this treasure trove of uh, photographs and documentation for the place that they operate that has been around for more than a century now. Wow. 
uh, and there were so many of these these farms up in that same area that the families had uh, had started back in the mid 1800s and a lot of them were still in the same families mm -hmm. um, so it was just kind of fascinating thing yeah all right and and which one of your fiction books uh came next or i guess well you, you've got some fiction but you've got some that are more non-fiction i guess yeah like, i'm kind of all over the map i just sort of write what appeals to me at the time mm -hmm. uh, my first fiction book was actually a children's book um at western but it was for kids and then stardust trail is actually my first novel my first full-length you know novel for adults Okay. All right. Yeah. And we're going to hear from that one today. So I'm, I'm really excited. And, and I got to hear a review about that here recently over on the six gun justice podcast. So everybody's got to check that out. That's a really great, uh, really great, oh, great show too. Yeah. I never miss that. If I can, if I can help it. <laughs> well, all right. So let's go back a little bit then. Tell us about like uh, some gave all. Some gave all um, actually started. I was, I was writing a magazine article for uh Wild West magazine. I, I've done quite a bit of work for them. And I don't even recall what I was looking for, but I was looking for some particular fact I needed for this story. And I was reading a, a uh, Texas newspaper from 1885. And I found the item I was looking for. And then a couple columns over was this half page story about a U.S. Marshal who had just been killed in the line of duty. Um, on board a train when he was transporting some prisoners mm. to the federal penitentiary. And, uh, and I read this story and it, and it kind of grabbed me because it was a real, you know, blood and thunder old West, you know, kind of a tale, but I had never heard of this person, never heard of this lawman, and uh, never heard of this incident. And I thought I was pretty well versed in Western history, but this was just a completely new thing to me. And so my first thought was to take that incident and, uh, and do another magazine article about it. But then it dawned on me that, you know, it, here's this story and this guy was killed in the line of duty and I've never heard of him pro probably because he was killed in the line of duty. And, you know, unlike Wyatt Earp and some of these better known people didn't live to a ripe old age mm. and get to tell his story. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just dawned on me that there were probably more of these stories out there, more of these people. And so I started digging in, uh, doing a bunch more research. And sure enough, there were not only in the West, although I was focusing mainly on the West, there were, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of uh, lawmen who were killed in the light of duty and, and uh, buried and sort of forgotten about by history. And, that just seemed like a shame to me. I thought, you know, every one of those people really deserved to be remembered and deserved to have their stories told. So I decided to tell a few of those myself. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I, knowing your history here, it sounds like the, uh, the, the lawmen have a, a special place in your heart. They do. They do. Yeah, I was a police officer for a time. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real important topic to me. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. I know that's something that oh, thank you. sometimes is, is kind of overlooked itself, but I, I really appreciate uh, that, that you've had a, a good career and you got to retire from it. Yeah. Yeah. Happy <laughs> about that. <laughs> and, and, and part of the deal with some gave all also was just, you know, I mentioned Wyatt Earp a minute ago. It always sort of rankled me that Wyatt Earp gets all the press, you know, Wyatt Earp is mm -hmm. like 
the one name, you know, if you mention Old West Lawman, his name inevitably comes up. Mm-hmm. But if you look at his career, he was a very interesting person. He's definitely, a, <laughs> you know, deserves a place in history. But as a lawman, he really was not greatly accomplished. He's, <laughs> he's kind of overrated in that regard by mm-hmm. history. And, uh, and so that bothered me too, that, that there were so many of these guys who, you know, had equal careers, you know, if not more spectacular than mm-hmm. Wyatt Earps, but nobody knows who they are. Right. Right. Well, you know, and, and whenever you watch the movies, I mean, Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp is probably more true to form, but it's a little, it's, it's dry and, and it's, yeah. it, you know, it's got those bits and it's, it's probably more truthful, but my gosh, Tombstone is just so much fun to watch. Yeah, Tombstone is <laughs> a great film. Not good, not great history, but a great film. Exactly, exactly. But the, but the, some gave all though. That sounds, that sounds exciting to go through and hear about these forgotten lawmen. Do you know how many there are? How many you got in the book? Well, there's four, there are 14 covered in the book in 10 different chapters. Oh, okay. There are 14 and 10 chapters is that five of them died in a single incident. Wow. Uh, actually right here in California, up in uh, Oakland. Wow. Back okay. in 1898, they were uh, killed in a, an explosion at a dynamite plant. <laughs> oh my gosh. While they were trying to arrest a murder suspect. Oh man. Now I'm, I would imagine well, I don't know. Were you able to put in all of them that you found, or did you have some that, that oh, didn't no. work out? Yeah, I actually, you know, because you, when you're doing a book, you know, you're pretty limited in what you can pack mm-hmm. between two covers. And so um, I, I just started off with those 10 chapters and sort of the stories that I thought maybe were the most interesting, that I had the best documentation for uh, getting, you know, pictures was important people like to see images of history mm-hmm. um, but but actually i've got a database on my computer and there are probably more than i don't know probably close to 300 names in it oh my gosh and ulti- ultimately i would like to do more books and some gave all line and tell a few more of these stories and it's just a matter of of having the time to do it and then uh, you know being able to research any given incident enough that you could devote a whole chapter in a book to it. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. And I I really think, (laughs) you know, I I have that many in the database and I know for sure that I've only scratched the surface. Wow. There are probably a whole lot of them out there that I imagine. So I'm not aware of that. I haven't found yet. You know, and with social media today, I'm sure you could probably put out a call and, and like you said, probably double it at least. Yeah. Yeah. My gosh, about that. <clears throat> well, I, I I look forward to uh, giving that one a try. That sounds like that that sounds like one of those books that you can just you put that on the on the coffee table and uh, pick it up. You read it once in a while and just yeah. wow, that's incredible. Well, thanks. So tell us about uh, the Littlest Wrangler. The Littlest Wrangler was just sort of a a fun thing, you know. I wanted to take a whirl at writing a children's book, and. Uh, you know, the big thing, big concern with kids nowadays is that they don't read as much as maybe kids did when I was young, mm. when you were young. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you know, 
writers are always looking for ways to involve kids, to engage kids, to get, you know, to kind of spark that love of reading. Um, and then at the same time, because I do a lot of Western stuff, um, I thought, well, it would be neat to do a Western story for kids too, because kids today don't have the advantage of, uh, you know, turning on the TV and seeing a Western on every channel like they did when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood's not making a lot of Western movies anymore. Yeah, unfortunately not. It's, yeah, and so that's just not so much in the culture uh, that today's kids are growing up with, growing up in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that seems like a shame, you know. And so I, I thought, well, if I'm going to take a crack at writing a kid's book, let me try and do a Western story and see how it works out. Yeah. All right. So, and this was a, uh, this one is fiction? It's fiction. It's, and it's actually a uh, sort of an, not really an adaptation, but it's inspired by the classic old uh, cowboy song, Little Joe the Wrangler. Oh, okay. A song that was written in the 1890s and, you know, cowboys used to sing it on the trail, sing to their <laughs> cattle. Uh -huh. uh, it's not a particularly happy song uh, because the kid in the, in the song doesn't end up uh, too well. And so I had to, had to fiddle with the ending a little bit and make it a little more upbeat. But, uh, <laughs> but essentially the story of the Littlest Wrangler is the story of, of Little Joe from the song. After doing a couple of nonfiction books and all the research that went into that, was there was it a challenge for you to shift gears and create the story? It was. And I was, uh, you know, doing the research helped a lot because, you know, it's a it's sort of a history-based story and I wanted to weave in mm -hmm. uh, that historical element. And then part of part of the fun of the book too and and uh, where writing nonfiction and doing that research helped out was um, there are a lot of terms in the book that I use that are old cowboy terms. And a lot of them came from Spanish terms because the original cowboys who taught American cowboys how to do their jobs were the Mexican vaqueros. Hmm. And so, so a lot of the old cowboy terms from back in the cattle driving days actually were sort of Americanizations of Spanish terms that the, that the vaqueros used. And so those are salted all through the Littlest Wrangler. And then at the end of the book, uh, to make it easier and a little more educational for kids, I included a glossary that explains what those terms were and a little bit of the genesis of each one. Fantastic. Wow, that sounds, that sounds exciting as well. I may have to... Uh... I, with a couple of grandkids around here, it's it's always a uh, always a battle to keep the uh, you know the remotes or the uh, games or something out of their hands. So it'd be oh, yeah. uh, fun to uh, get them get them reading something like this. <laughs> well, so I'm gonna leapfrog here a little bit because I see a little bit of congratulations with an upcoming book that you have, Emily's Gift, which is coming out at the end of July, and it's already a number one new release. Is it? <laughs> okay that's okay you got me there I didn't <laughs> yeah i'm i'm on your uh your amazon page right now checking oh, out your books exciting. so apparently you're you're doing really well with the pre-orders so congratulations news. thank you my <laughs> wife will be thrilled to hear that she yeah this one with me so uh that was a lot of fun as well 
Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about that. Well, hopefully we'll get a few more readers uh, jumping on there and grabbing a copy. I, I honestly don't even remember how the whole thing started, but I think it was a conversation with my wife and it was, you know, we talked about, well, I did the, the Littlest Wrangler and it's primarily a book for boys. I mean, not that girls wouldn't enjoy it, but mm -hmm. it's about it's about a 10 year old boy and it's from his point of view. And so um, I think we just thought, you know, really ought to do something for girls. Um, and so we just kind of played with story ideas and we're both, my wife and I are both just uh, nuts for Christmas. You know, we, <laughs> we're like kids ourselves at Christmas time. And so I thought, well, we'll do a, not only a, a book geared more for girls, but a Christmas book. Yeah. Um, set it around Christmas. And again, his history seems to creep into everything I do. And so uh, we started looking at, you know, old traditions from a hundred years ago, Christmas traditions and uh, poems and songs and literature of the time. And just thought, well, let's weave some of those things into a story. And so we kicked it around and we developed a story about a, a girl in New York City, modern day New York City, mm -hmm. who's 10 years old, but she is not happy being a kid. She kind of thinks of herself as an adult trapped in a kid's body and is not particularly fond of Christmas because she thinks her parents make too big a deal of Christmas. The parents act like kids. Um, the family comes over and everyone is just sort of annoying to her her younger cousins or you know want to play but they're too little and you know she's she's very mature for her age and so she is given a dollhouse that belonged to her great-grandmother um, and finds out from the great-grandmother that it actually belonged to her mother uh, was built by the mother's dad back in the day he was a cabinet mm. maker okay. and uh and so this girl emily inherits this dollhouse and she's not really you know all that fond of it to begin with because it's it's a kid thing uh, but it intrigues her and so much so that she ends up sort of shifting back in time and she goes to sleep and wakes up and she's actually in uh, the early 1900s with the original inhabitants of this actual house that the dollhouse was uh, was copied after. Oh wow! And becomes close to the family and close to the children, and um, kind of gets swept up into their Christmas preparations and all this stuff that you know in her own time and life she wasn't really that fond of, mm -hmm. and just through that sort of has an epiphany that uh, you know Christmas is not so bad and being a kid is really you know I should enjoy it while I can because I'm not going to be a kid forever <laughs> well it sounds like a very sweet tale and and, and apparently I'm not the only one so that, and that's, <laughs> that's good that's good news that's good yeah news. that is that's exciting so and that's Emily's gift a tale of a Christmas present and a Christmas past yes. coming out July 31st so everybody go grab a copy of it right now and be a part of this exciting adventure. Yeah, pre-orders are available. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, so our uh, our big story today, Stardust Trail, a uh, 
a Nate Ross novel. Tell us about this one. This is your 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 latest one. It came out in March and uh, seems to be doing pretty good itself. Yeah, yeah, it's doing well so far. It's it's a detective story. It's kind of a traditional, old, you know, it's set in 1938 Los Angeles, and uh, just another area that I like to read in. I I enjoy you know old classic detective tales. Have read them my whole life, and. Uh, always in the back of my mind had wanted to write one and uh, I reached the point where I was going to going to take a shot I'd done all this nonfiction stuff and and magazine articles about the old west and I was going to take a crack at writing a traditional western novel uh, it was going to be my first you know full-on novel uh, so I was kicking ideas around and then I just sort of mentally shifted gears at some point I was I think I was reading a lot of detective fiction and was kind of drawn more toward well maybe I want to do a detective story first mm-hmm. um, and then at some point it just occurred to me that you know I really could do a little of both it's 1938 it was the heyday of the of the B Western in Hollywood and uh, and a lot of the guys that were making these B westerns, a lot of the, especially the bit players, the stuntmen, the guys you see in the background, you know, henchman number two and that sort of thing, <laughs> were actually guys who had been cowboys, you know, who had ended up coming out west and getting paid, uh, you know, real cowboys getting paid to be pretend cowboys. Yeah. And so it just sort of sort of gelled from there. Well, you know, there's these two things kind of, you can dovetail them um, into a single story. And and so that's what Stardust Trail is. It's a a story of a private investigator who gets drawn into this case that takes him into the world of these B-movie cowboys and uh, ends up not only dealing with the case, the, the 1938 case that he sets out to solve, but gets drawn into a uh, case of a uh, murder and train robbery and double murder that happened almost 40 years earlier in Texas in the real Wild West. Oh, wow. All right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and, and this just, it, it, it's got quite the, uh, the, the cover draws you in. It's got quite the storyline and, and the hook uh, to go into it. This is, uh, this sounds amazing. What and, and your idea behind that was just you were just wanting to do a something detective? Yeah, in that you time know, it, yeah, I started off, you know, I wanted to do a western and then I thought, nah, I'll do a detective story first and and uh it just <laughs> uh, <laughs> just occurred to me, you know, well I don't really have to choose. I can do a little of both. Do a, <laughs> do a book that sort of got a foot in both uh both worlds there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah that pre-world war ii time where everything was pretty golden at that at that moment yeah you know and and westerns were you know these b westerns were kind of the for the you know joe six-pack that was kind of the entertainment of the day you know before anybody had netflix or amazon prime or any of those (laughs) people were going to the neighborhood theater and watching these and i can see old films I, I can see the draw with that too, because it it does cross that line. It's still in that time frame in America where 
you, you could live somewhere that you could literally get on your horse and ride off somewhere for a day or two before coming across another town. Oh yeah. And my, and much of Los Angeles, even at that time, you know, outside of the metropolitan city, which of course was much smaller back then. Anyway, mm. uh, Los Angeles was surrounded by, you know, scrub brush and desert and hills and open areas. And there, there were a lot of people on the outskirts that were still traveling horseback in the thirties. Wow. My goodness. Now this is, uh, the, uh, the, the subtitle, of this is a Nate Ross novel. So that yes. kind of lends itself to the idea that uh, there could be more. There's actually, I'm, I'm working on uh, Nate Ross number two at the moment, and there's going to be at least one more to follow that. Fantastic. So, yeah, we'll find out a little bit more about Nate. All right. Well, that's, that's outstanding. <clears throat> do we, uh, do you have a, uh, an idea when you might have the next one available? Uh, it's due to the publisher in November, and I believe they have it slated to be released in March of next year. Okay, yeah. And that's, uh, let's see, what is that? That's Level Best Books. Level Best Books, yeah. Fantastic. Wow, and it's only 208 pages. This is a quick read. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's fun. That's, uh, that's one of those books that somebody could pick up for an afternoon and almost uh, get, depending on, on your reading level. Oh, I yeah. guess you might be able to knock that out pretty quick. It's a nice beach read. If anybody was allowed to go <laughs> to the beach, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. Or I'll just sit on the back deck with a cigar and there see you how go. far yeah. I go. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I do. Fantastic. You know, this is, uh, JR, this has been fantastic. I really enjoy getting to, to talk to new authors that are, are new to me, and I'm so happy you reached out to me. Where can, uh, where can people find and follow you? Uh, they can find me. My website is real simple. It's jrsanders.com. Uh, they can find me on Facebook. Um, I've got an author page there. Also got an Instagram page. Um, yeah, but I would start with the website and all the links to those other things are there anyway. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so now, is there anything with the uh, Stardust Trail? Because I know we had talked before, and and we're not going to be hearing from the beginning of the novel. We're going to be hearing from something uh, a little bit in. Is there anything we need to know to set it up? Uh, a little bit, yeah. And I I thought it, I'm actually going into chapter six, and that's not quite as far into the book as it sounds like, because the first few chapters are fairly short. Um, at this point in the book, Nate has, he solved, a, a, in the beginning of the book, a kidnapping of sorts that put him on the radar of Republic Pictures. Republic Pictures is a real life uh, studio, and they were one of the main ones that were making these B-Westerns back in the day. Um, and so he's come to the attention of Republic, and they've hired him to uh, find a screenwriter who's disappeared on this latest movie that they're working on, which is called Stardust Trail. Um, and the whole idea of Stardust Trail, the movie, is that Republic has found out that John Ford is out in Arizona and Utah shooting a movie called Stagecoach, mm -hmm. um, which at this point, the big studios have stopped making Westerns. They're they just don't feel like there's enough money in them that there's enough interest anymore. And so Republic is sort of 
got the market cornered on these B Westerns, but they're afraid that Stagecoach is going to be so big that it's going to get the, the major studios interested again. Um, and so they've sort of broken the bank. They don't do big budget pictures typically, but they've decided they're going to do this big budget picture called Stardust Trail that uh, they're hoping is going to blow Stagecoach out of the water and, and uh, keep Republic sort of in the catbird seat. But their, their uh, screenwriter for the picture has suddenly disappeared, just dropped out of sight. He's been missing for a couple of weeks. And so they hire Nate Ross to find it. Um, so at this point in the book, Nate has done a little bit of little bit of work, expended a little shoe leather, uh, hooked up with his old friend from high school, uh, Duke Morrison, who is actually now a, an up and coming actor working for Republic, doing pictures under uh, the name John Wayne. <laughs> and, uh, th and at this point, John Wayne is still a relatively unknown actor, you know, of course, if you know anything about John Wayne and Western films, Stagecoach is going to change all that. Uh, going to make him a superstar. But but at this point, he's just a, you know, kind of a workaday actor trying to keep the bills paid. And so Nate has enlisted Duke's help in uh, in trying to track down the screenwriter. Duke doesn't really know him very well. Uh, just kind of knows who he is. But he's asking around. He's got cowboy buddies that that know the screenwriter, and uh, so that's where we begin here, um, chapter six, and starts with a phone call from Duke. All right, that's I can't wait, and uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to uh, <clears throat> light a cigar and grab a drink and sit back to enjoy <laughs> this myself. So, all right. Once again, JR, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Ah, thank you, Jason. Likewise. All right, ladies and gentlemen, then that's my cue. Time for me to sit back with my cigar and a drink and check out this uh, sample chapter from our guest, J.R. Sanders, reading from Stardust Trail, a Nate Ross novel. All right. Late next morning, Duke phoned me at the office. He hadn't wasted any time. He had asked a couple of cowboy buddies and gotten directions to Prince's hideaway. While I have you on the horn, he said, I told the wife about running into my old high school pal and she's anxious to meet you. Really? She looking for embarrassing stories from back in the day? I can tell her a few. To tell the truth, I think Josie's just happy to hear I have any friends who aren't in the movie trade. Anyway, how about having dinner with us Thursday night? Sardi's my ticket. I wasn't really the dinner and cocktails type, and Sardis was a little Tony for my taste. On the other hand, I was curious to see what kind of girl had married Duke. Sure, Duke, you're on. As an afterthought, I added, all right, if I bring a date, I could hear the grin in his voice. Sure, bring anyone you want. We settled on half past six and hung up. I gassed my coupe and headed for Chatsworth. I had no trouble finding the way into Prince's cabin. It was off the old stagecoach road that served as a main highway in these parts. Duke had said to look for a little bridge of railroad ties over a drainage ditch and a double-sided gate of heavy timbers just beyond. From there, the path, nothing that you could call a road, ran through a narrow, steep-walled canyon and wound serpentine through heaps of red boulders and sparse clumps of trees. The house was three or four miles up the canyon, tucked into a box-like clearing on the east side, 
It was bigger than I'd pictured. Cabin had conjured up images of an Abe Lincoln affair, but this was more what I'd call a lodge. It was a long rectangle, cedar shingled all over, and sat on a high foundation of river rock. A wide porch ran along the front and down one side with steps at either end. A standalone garage was at right angles to the back of the house, and next to that was a small open-faced barn fronted by a pipe corral. A strong breeze blew down the canyons, that and the squeak of the open corral gate on its hinges were the only sounds. I didn't bother knocking. The door was unlocked, so I went in. The place was mostly one large room filled with rustic furniture, upholstered in Indian blanket designs. One corner was a kitchen area with cabinets, a small table and chairs, and a big wood-burning cook stove. Stairs along the wall in the opposite corner led to a wood-railed loft, apparently the sleeping quarters. A small bathroom underneath the loft was the only separate room. Like the apartment, the place was neat and tidy, but somebody had clearly been here too. If it was the same party who'd searched the apartment, they hadn't bothered to do as neat a job. It might have been done two hours ago or two weeks. There was nothing to say which. I checked the loft first, but found nothing much. A change of clothes in the closet, but no dirty laundry. If Prince was here in the last couple of weeks, it wasn't for long. Whoever had searched had stripped the bed down to the mattress, so there was no telling whether it had been slept in. The living room and bathroom told me nothing. Toiletries in the cabinet looked like stuff Prince would have kept here for his visits. The cabinet had been rifled, so whatever someone was looking for was something that could have been hidden just about anywhere. They'd given his kitchen the same treatment. Cupboard doors stood open, the supplies in them scattered about. Canisters of flour, sugar, and coffee had been dumped into the sink. A nail keg used for trash stood in the corner, its cover tossed to one side. The one item of interest in the trash was a half-eaten ham sandwich. It was green and fuzzy around the edges. It had been there a few days. Prince wasn't the sort to go away without dumping the garbage. A plate and cup next to the sink had been rinsed but not washed. A coffee pot on the stove was still half full. It appeared that Prince had been eating, lunch probably and something or somebody had interrupted him. Not an emergency if he'd taken the time to rinse his dishes. He'd been in something of a hurry, but hadn't planned to be gone long. The stove was cold, but the remains of a wood fire were inside it. As I was closing it back up, something on top of the ashes caught my eye, a ghostly image of what had been printing. I scooped out the ashes and saw that a thin stack of papers had been tossed on top of the burning wood. They were blackened ash, but the smooth surfaces and sharp edges were discernible. In the back of the firebox, I found one fragment about the size of a calling card that had drifted loose from the pile. It was a newspaper clipping. Whether the fire or age had made it brittle and yellow, I couldn't tell. One side was part of an advertisement for a clock shop in Dallas, Texas. It had been clipped through the middle of the ad, so whoever cut it out hadn't had clocks in mind. The other side was a news story, or part of one. The upper part had been burned away, and the lower edge was neatly cut just below the words continued on page four. What remained was a partial account of a train robbery and a hunt for two men. That made it an old cutting. I couldn't recall news of a train robbery in Texas or any place else since I was a kid. Whatever it was, I doubted it had much to do with the missing screenwriter but just to be a good and thorough detective, I tucked it carefully inside my wallet. I went back out to the garage. The Chevrolet coupe parked inside was shiny and clean under a thin layer of settled dust. 
I checked the notes Okel had given me. Prince's car. The engine was cold. The car had been tossed, too, along with the garage. There were no animals in the barn, but a one-horse trailer had been rolled into the corner. Piles of dry horse manure in the corral showed that it had been occupied, but not too recently. Water in the galvanized trough was scummy and floated a few leaves and dead flies. I closed the corral gate behind me and started walking the grounds around the house, searching for I didn't know what. A sound like someone blowing a raspberry and a blur of movement off to my right startled me. About 20 yards west of the house, a horse was emerging from a break in a line of stumpy trees. It stopped to idly nibble at the grass, and if it saw me, it gave no sign. It was a sort of khaki color with a dark brown mane and tail and black forelegs. It wore a saddle and bridle. As I approached the horse, it raised its head and eyed me. Its ears twitched, and it sidled a few steps away and continued nipping grass. When I got within 15 feet, it lifted its head and made the raspberry sound again. I didn't know how to interpret that. I said, hey there, softly, and inched forward with both hands held out front. The horse gave me a sidelong look, but stayed put. I hadn't been this near a horse since I was a boy. I wasn't sure what to fear more, being bitten or kicked. Since they sounded about equally unpleasant, I did my best to stay away from either end. I eased up beside the horse and laid a hand against its shoulder. The muscles quivered and the animal made a contented sound. That reassured me. Up close, I could see the reins dangling straight down from the horse's bridle. One dragged in the dirt and the other hung about a foot off the ground. It appeared to have been broken off. The horse wasn't injured that I could see and there was no sign that its rider, assuming there'd been one, had been hurt. A pair of cowboy saddlebags hung across the horse's rump behind the saddle. I went through them as best I could with the big animal walking in slow circles around me. One contained what I dimly remembered as horse grooming tools. There was a wide flat brush, a hoof pick like a screwdriver with his blade bent to the side, and a thing that might have been a potato scrubber, a curry comb I remembered it was called. The other held a wallet and a set of keys. Inside it, I found Prince's driver's license, some other papers of no interest, and $78 cash. The key ring held keys for the car, what looked like the keys to the cabin, to Prince's apartment, and two or three smaller keys, desks or padlocks, maybe. One small brass key with USPO 17 stamped on it looked like a post office box key. I pocketed these items. I looked toward the gap in the trees where the horse had appeared, a winding dirt trail snaked through and disappeared over the little hill beyond. Horse tracks running both directions were sun-baked into the hard ground. The trail was wide enough for a car, but I saw no tire tracks. Stay, I told the horse, doubting it would do much good. I started down the riding path, looking all around me as I went. Tom Mix might have gleaned something from the horse tracks, but he wasn't here. To me, they said nothing except that horses had passed through. Nothing else along the way interested me until I saw the birds. As I crested the hill, I looked out over a wide, flat expanse beyond. The trail through it ran straight as a bullet between clustered boulders and clumps of brush. Fifty or sixty yards out alongside the trail, several huge black birds squatted. A couple of others floated in lazy circles overhead. I'd been so intent on the ground I hadn't noticed them before. I'd driven through the desert enough to know turkey vultures when I saw them. Those on the ground clustered around something I couldn't make out. When I got within a hundred feet, I caught the smell. 
faint at this distance, but unmistakable. At 50 feet, the stench was stronger. At 20, it was intense. I shook out a handkerchief and held it over my nose and mouth. It didn't help much. The air I sucked through it smelled like clean linen and death. As I drew closer, the birds started flapping irritably and took off one by one. Now I could see what had held their interest. It was a man's body. Between what Mother Nature and the birds had done to the face, Okel's photo wasn't much help. The hair seemed about right. He looked heavier than Okel had described him, but when a body's been out in the sun for a while, you can't always go by descriptions. Whoever shot him had figured if one bullet was good, half a dozen were better. What had been a fancy green and white cowboy shirt sported several finger-sized holes, and the entire shirt front was brick red and stiff with long dried blood. I didn't give more than a cursory look around and walked back up the trail. Prince's cabin had no telephone, but I'd passed a roadside bar and diner a couple of miles back down the highway. I'd call it in from there. The horse had moved up near the house and was still eating grass. I thought about putting it in the corral, but wasn't sure I could manage it. Just as I reached my car, a shot sounded in the distance and dirt kicked up near my feet. The report echoed off the canyon walls, making it impossible to tell where it had come from. A second shot followed, and a bullet smacked my car, punching a neat hole in the fender. At least that gave me a general direction. I hunkered down on the opposite side of the car and sneaked a look through the windows. The shots must have come from high up the North Canyon wall. My 380 would be useless at that range, but holding it in my hand made me feel better. I raised my head as much as I dared to scan the entire canyon wall for any sign of the gunman. Nothing. Beside the house, the horse continued to calmly clip grass. After what seemed like ten minutes, more likely two, crawled by with no sign that the siege would continue, I heard a dull drumming sound from the slope opposite me. Through the trees about halfway up the canyon side, I caught a flash of movement. A mounted, cowboy-hatted man on a reddish horse, moving fast and heading east toward the highway. I yanked open the passenger door and clambered across into the driver's seat. I kicked the starter and took off down the long drive in a spray of gravel, keeping watch on the canyon wall as I drove. Now and then I saw, or thought I did, flashes of a horseman through the rocks and trees. I kept my head as far back as possible for what little protection the doorpost offered. If I could see him, he could see me, and the high ground was his. The highway was several miles away, and there were no roads in between other than the goat track I was on. Not that that would matter much to a man on horseback. The road sloped up as the canyon narrowed and the dark, threatening walls on either side of me grew lower and lower. I'd caught another glimpse or two of the rider, still bearing toward the highway. If he reached it first, he could ambush me as I passed through the gateway and turned onto the main roadway. Pulling ahead and letting him get behind me didn't sound any more appealing. As I weighed the options, I saw him, or his dust wake, not more than 20 feet above the road and maybe 30 yards ahead of me. I was still maybe a mile from the highway. The road now was an up-and-down series of ruts, ridges, and blind curves. I might come over one of the crests to find my assailant waiting on the other side. I had to reach the highway first. The final stretch was a hundred yards of straight level road across an open field where there'd be no cover. At the far end of that was the heavy double gate secured by an iron hasp in the middle. Good citizen that I was, I'd closed and refastened it behind me. Beyond the gate, the drive narrowed to the little bridge, which had no rail, the drainage ditch below it about eight feet wide and four deep. 
the only way onto the highway was through the gate and across the bridge. I'd have to ram the gate. As it turned out, I didn't have to ram the gate. Topping the last of the little hills, I was startled to see a figure standing in the road ahead looking out across the highway and beating clouds of dust from his clothes with his big tan cowboy hat. His horse lay on its side at the edge of the road, thrashing its legs feebly. I ground to a stop and was out of the car, leaning over the hood with my gun on him before he even seemed to notice me. Fun's over, Tex, I said, hoping I didn't sound as shaky as I felt. Let go of the hat and get your hands high where I can see them. He gave me an incredulous look, snorted in derision, and slapped the hat onto his head. He was maybe in his fifties, wiry, not too tall, with a weathered face and hair like steel wool. I recognized him instantly. He was the cowboy who'd been snooping into my car outside Prince's apartment. He didn't raise his hands, but took care to keep them away from his body as he walked over to the downed horse. Aw, shit, he said softly. Over his shoulder, he said, you can stow your pistol part. I ain't the one shot at you. He said it matter-of-factly as though he were remarking on the weather. I stepped out from behind the car, but kept the 380 pointed in his general vicinity. It was going to take more than an aw shucks Will Rogers act to convince me. He turned to face me. I'm guessing that there's a 30-30 bullet hole. He pointed at my fender, and I glanced at the damage. The hole was neat and perfectly round, about the diameter of a cigarette. Rifle bullet, he continued. I got no rifle nor boot for one on my saddle just a six-shooter in my bags, and I'm going to need that, unless you're willing to shoot this mare that front legs busted all the hell. I looked at the horse. Its coat seemed darker than what I'd seen through the trees, but I couldn't be sure. It made wheezing sounds and moved its head restlessly, flashing the whites of its eyes. One foreleg was bent straight outward where there was no joint. The leg bled freely and a dagger of white bone protruded. I'm not one to get all fluttery at the sight of blood, but the big animal's obvious suffering made me queasy. I lowered the gun to my side, but didn't holster it. Every now and then I'm wrong about people. The cowboy took my movement for consent. He squatted down and worked the saddlebags loose, then fished out a big stag-handled single-action colt. A damn shame, he said. With no more preamble, he stood, cocked the big piece, and shot the horse through the head. The snorting and thrashing stopped. He stuffed the big pistol back into the saddlebags and started unfastening his saddle and bridle. If you didn't shoot at me, I asked. Who did? He answered without looking up. Tall fellow on a sorrel. Before I could ask what the hell a sorrel was, he continued. I didn't get a good look. He was moving too fast and had too much start. This old girl was a good trail mount, but no runner. I saw you yesterday, I said, over on Marmont, looking into my car. He nodded his head. How come? I'm a nosy fellow, I guess. I was just curious who was poking around in Dave Prince's rooms. Are you a friend of his? He stacked the saddle and bridle on the road and stood to face me. Friend ain't really the word. I know him. I'm working on a picture he's doing at Republic. Stardust Trail? Yeah. Without warning, he stepped up to me, right hand extended. I'm Dusty Vanner. This took me by surprise. I had to shift the 380 to my left hand to return the handshake. I felt foolish doing it, so I just holstered the damn thing. Nate Ross, I said. Why so interested in the guy if you're not friends? He owes me $50 from a poker game a couple of weeks back, but he hasn't been on the set, so I thought I'd pay him a call. He hooked a thumb at the saddle. 
seeing as I'm afoot now, you mind giving me and my gear a ride back to town? Only if you're in no big hurry, I said. He may as well know it. It would be all over the Stardust Trail set by tomorrow. But forget about your fifty bucks. Prince is dead. His eyebrows lifted just slightly. His face was otherwise unchanged. I described in no great detail what I'd found. I need to let the police know, I said. There's a diner down the road a few miles. I can drop you there if there's someone you can call. I'll need to meet the cops back up at Prince's. If you've no objection, he said, I'll tag along. I wasn't keen on the idea. Then again, he was a witness to the assault on me, at least. It'd be saving the cops some shoe leather if they could talk to him now, and I needed all the police goodwill I could get. We piled Vanner's gear in my trunk and drove to the diner. I got from him on the way that he'd been a cowboy in Oklahoma and had come out to California a couple of years back when his part of the country went from farm and ranch land to desert overnight. So many others came, he said, that jobs got scarce at the Central Coast ranches and up into San Joaquin. But Hollywood had plenty of work for fellows who could rope and ride. He said he made a decent living as a horse wrangler and henchy bit players usually cast as bad guys. Silly as hell, he said, real cowboys taking good money to be pretend cowboys. But it lets me sleep indoors and keep three meals a day under my belt. He laughed. I just hope the folks back home don't ever spot me in one of the damn things. I'd never live it down. I phoned the police operator from the diner. Banner and I had a quick cup of coffee and then drove back to Prince's cabin. The horse was still next to the house, lazing in the sun. Banner took charge of it. He led it into the corral, stripped off the saddle, and brushed and combed its coat. He brought out hay from the barn and refilled the steel tub with fresh water. I watched all this while I smoked a cigarette on the porch. When he'd finished, he joined me. I'm not sure what they'll do with his horse, I said. That there's a Fat Jones horse, same as I was riding. I asked if Fat Jones was a type of horse. He smothered a laugh. Fat Jones is a fellow owns a stable in the valley, he said. Rents out horses and rigs to the movie companies. He'll be happy to get that one back, I imagine. Might make up for the one I lost him. We sat and made small talk for a while. I told him Republic had hired me to find Prince. He didn't know or didn't admit knowing that there was anything amiss with Prince. After an hour or so, a big sedan crunched its way down the drive and two detectives got out. If Republic had been shooting a cops and robbers film, they couldn't have cast two likelier-looking Joes. They were standard LAPD plainclothes types. One was large, 45-ish, a little saggy around the middle, but still plenty hard. And the other was maybe 30, slender and athletic. Both wore nondescript suits and fedoras cocked at identical angles. The big man's jacket fit him like the wrapper on a ham. The kid had sprung for a tailor. The big cop had a cold cigar stabbed into the corner of his mouth. We met them at the bottom of the steps. The big guy looked Vanner over without evident curiosity and then eyeballed me. His face was lumpy, shapeless, pockmarked. It looked like a wad of chewed gum. His small eyes were hard and shiny as thumbtacks. His reddish Errol Flynn mustache might have been a decoration on any other face. You the private dick that called this in? He asked in a voice like a foghorn. I said I was, and he thrust out a big hairy mitt. Gimme. I handed him my license. Without looking at it, he passed it to the younger man. I'm Queenan, the big man said. Lieutenant out of homicide. This is Sergeant Bernal. The young detective gave us a polite nod. Nobody shook hands or offered to. 
Bernal read my license and gave me a meaningful look but said nothing. So, Quinan went on, who got chilled and what do you two have to do with it? The dead man's a mile or so down that trail, I said and pointed. A guy named David Prince, this is his place. He's a screenwriter working for Republic Pictures. He went missing a while back, so they hired me to find him. Queenan listened with an expressionless face. So, I guess you earned your fee. His thumbtack eyes drifted to Vanner. This is Dusty Vanner, I told him. He's working on Prince's current film. He's a... I looked at the cowboy. I wasn't sure what to call him. Stuntman and bit player, Dusty explained. Why'd you bring him along, Queenan asked me. I didn't. I came looking for Prince because he was missing. Mr. Vanner showed up because Prince owed him money. There was a flicker in Queenan's eyes. Say money to a homicide dick, and he hears motive. You found what when you got here? I walked him through the sequence of events since my arrival, the ransacked house, the rancid food, the wandering horse, the riding trail, Prince's body with a chest full of slugs. I gave him Prince's wallet, but held on to the news clipping and the keys. Only when I described being shot at the chase and finding Vanner on the road did Queenan show much interest. So you didn't know this bird before today? Right. I didn't mention seeing Vanner the previous day. But you believe him when he says it was another guy shot at you? The bullet hole in the car is from a rifle, I said. He's only carrying a handgun. Yeah, Queenan said. How about you show me this handgun? I gave Bernal my keys, and he and Vanner walked over to my car. They came back, Bernal carrying Vanner's Colt by the barrel. One shot fired from it, Carl. Queenan's eyebrows rose, and he looked at me and Vanner in turn. I had to shoot my horse, Vanner said. She smashed a leg. Which would explain the dead horse down near the gate, Bernal said. Queenan gave him an irritated look. He took the big pistol and looked it over. Geez, I thought they only packed these pistolas and horse operas nowadays. He looked at Vanner. You got a carry permit? Do I need one? Vanner asked without rancor. I'm on private land. Blah, Queenan said, waving a hand like he was fanning away a bad odor. I'd learned that was his standard reply when he had no snappier comeback handy. He handed the piece back to Bernal without looking at him. Hold on to that, Frank, until we've had a look at our stiff. He motioned me toward their car. Let's go. We all piled in into their sedan. Bernal drove and I sat up front with him while Queenan and Vanner got in the back. We started down the riding trail. Queenan took out a little notebook. What's your name, gummy? Nate Ross. There was an electric pause in the air. Queenan's tone had been none too friendly to begin with. Now it took on a nasty edge. Nate Ross, he repeated, as though tasting something he didn't like. Nate Ross, that used to be a county dip? Yeah. He slapped the back of Bernal's seat. Well, we're a cinch to bust this case, Frankie. We got the DA's star witness on our side. This guy loves to testify in court if we can only pin this on a copper. Bernal frowned at him in the mirror and gave me a sideways look that might have been sympathetic. He said nothing. I didn't need to point out the spot. The birds were back. Most of them scattered as we got out. A couple optimistic ones perched 50 feet away and sat watching us. We walked over to what was left of David Prince. Queenan winced at the odor. He took out a little tin of mentholated balm and rubbed some around his nostrils and in his mustache, an old cop's trick. Bernal and I used our handkerchiefs. Banner pulled his bandana up over his nose, bandit style. 
for a civilian, he didn't appear to be any more bothered by the sight than we were. He seemed more interested in the hoof prints that pocked the ground around us. Queenan silently counted the bullet holes. Somebody wasn't joking around. He looked at Bernal. A week at least, huh? Bernal nodded. Queenan looked at me. How long you say this guy's been missing, Stooley? Two weeks. You could blow Stooley out your ass. He chuckled. Hard guy. I wouldn't get too lippy, pal. You ain't quite in the clear here. Sure, I said. I shot him a week ago. Got myself hired to find him two days ago. Then called you out today to show off my work. I'm eccentric that way. I ain't had time to check out your story. Until I do, I'm keeping an open mind. Anyway, could be your pal here done it. What caliber is that hog like, Frankie? Bernal took Vanner's pistol from his waistband. 4440. Queen and looked at the holes in Prince's shirt. Maybe, he said. Bernal, meanwhile, was circling the ground around the body, poking about in the clumps of brush. A few yards away, he stooped and used his handkerchief to pull something out. Got shell casings, Carl, he said. Forty-five auto. He looked side to side. Half dozen or so. Queenan looked annoyed. So much for Vanner's wheel gun. Before we forget, he said to me, what are you packing? I showed him my three eighty. He ran his thumb over the ornate engraving pearl grips. He snorted. Might have guessed you'd carry some kind of pimp's piece. He handed the gun back. He looked disappointed but satisfied. Well, let's not stand out here with all this damn stink. He got back in the car and sat scribbling notes. Bernal got a canvas tarp from the trunk and draped it over the body, weighting the corners with rocks. The two diehard buzzards flapped away in disgust. We started back to the house. Queenan was irritated to learn there was no phone. We drove on to the diner where he called for the coroner and the crime scene boys, then we returned to the house. Queenan went inside to look around while Bernal stayed on the porch with Vanner and me and took precise notes of our statements. I should have kept my mouth shut, but I had to ask when he gave my license back. Yes, he had recognized the name. Yes, he had heard the whole story, some version of it anyway. You don't act like you hate my guts about it, I said, or do you just hide it better than your boss? I wasn't there, pal was all he said. Anything, he asked, looking up as Queenan came back out. Queenan shook his head. Nope, rotten sandwich, like he said. He pointed his chin at me. But he would notice that. He's got a nose for anything rotten, this boy does. I'd had about enough of his gaff. I hated guys like him who mistook big and loud for tough and thought a badge in the pocket was an anointment from God. I'd have knocked him off the porch and enjoyed the trip to jail for it. But Bernal seemed like an okay guy, and I didn't want to make him any more work. Anything else you need from us? I made a point of directing this at Bernal and not his supervisor. I guess not for now, he said. He questioned Queenan with his eyes. Blah! Queenan fanned the air again. Bernal handed Vanner back his pistol. You keep that thing in leather while you're in my town, cowboy, Queenan said. Vanner just nodded. Bernal walked us to the car while Queenan glared at us from the porch. Don't let him get under your skin, Ross, Bernal said. He may get my fist under his jaw next time he pops off. Nah, don't talk like that. Look, I wouldn't piss on the guy's head if his hair caught fire, but we're partners. You understand? I understood. Sure, I said. He smiled. Okay, then. Probably just to wrinkle Queenan, he shook hands with us. We'll be in touch, boys. Thanks. He walked back to the house. Vanner turned down a ride back to town, saying he'd ride Prince's horse back and return it to the stable. 
He unloaded his gear from my trunk and we said goodbye. I'd been hoping to ask him a little more about his dealings with Prince on the drive back. Maybe he sensed that. I wasn't sure. I tried ringing up Phil Local when I got back, but he was long gone for the rest of the day. It would have to keep till morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was J.R. Sanders reading a sample chapter from his newest novel, Stardust Trail. It was great. I love it. I'm, I'm picking up a copy of that right now. And uh, if you want to do the same, make sure you click the link in the show notes for JR's website and books. Don't forget to also click those links for our sponsors and podcast friends alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when we're back with a brand new author, a new book, and an all new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again real, real soon, I promise. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.